Hello and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Today we're talking to Stuart Turton, author of The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Harcastle. We discuss intricate plotting, character development and Stuart's fun technique of method writing. Day one. I forget everything between footsteps. Anna, I finish shouting, snapping my mouth shut in surprise. My mind has gone blank. I don't know who Anna is or why I'm calling her name. I don't even know how I got here. I'm standing in a forest shielding my eyes from the spitting rain. My heart's thumping. I reek of sweat and my legs are shaking. I must have been running, but I can't remember why. How did... I'm cut short by the sight of my own hands. They're bony, ugly, a stranger's hands. I don't recognise them at all. Feeling the first touch of panic, I try to recall something else about myself. A family member, my address, age, anything, but nothing's coming. I don't even have a name. Every memory I had a few seconds ago is gone. My throat tightens, breaths coming loud and fast. The forest is spinning, black spots inking my sight. Be calm. I can't breathe, I gasp, blood roaring in my ears as I sink to the ground, my fingers digging into the dirt. You can breathe, you just need to calm down. There's comfort in this inner voice, a cold authority. Close your eyes, listen to the forest, collect yourself. Obeying the voice, I squeeze my eyes shut, but all I can hear is my own panicked wheezing. For the longest time, it crushes every other sound, but slowly, ever so slowly, I work a hole in my fear, allowing other noises to break through. Raindrops are tapping the leaves, branches rustling overhead. There's a stream away to my right and crows in the trees, their wings cracking the air as they take flight. Something scurrying in the undergrowth, the thump of rabbit feet passing near enough to touch. One by one I knit these new memories together until I've got five minutes of past to wrap myself in. It's enough to staunch the panic, at least for now. I get to my feet clumsily, surprised by how tall I am, how far from the ground I seem to be. Swaying a little I wipe the wet leaves from my trousers, noticing for the first time that I'm wearing a dinner jacket, the shirt splattered with mud and red wine. I must have been at a party. My pockets are empty and I don't have a coat so I can't have strayed too far. That's reassuring. Judging by the light it's morning, so I've probably been out here all night. No one gets dressed up to spend an evening alone which means somebody must know I'm missing by now. Surely beyond these trees a house is coming awake in alarm, search parties striking out to find me. My eyes roam the trees, half expecting to see my friends emerging through the foliage, pats on the back and gentle joes escorting me back home. But daydreams won't deliver me from this forest, and I can't linger here hoping for rescue. I'm shivering, my teeth chattering. I need to start walking, if only to keep warm, but I can't see anything except trees. There's no way to know whether I'm moving towards help, or blundering away from it. Hi Stuart Turton, how's it going? It's going brilliantly, thanks very much. Thank you very much for joining us on the Riff Raff podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, So let's start with you telling us a little bit more about your debut novel, The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. Okay, well it's a Agatha Christie novel in a Groundhog Day loop with a bit of Quantum Leap. Have you ever seen that show? Uh, 80s classic Quantum Leap, Uh, it's with that layered over the top of it. So every time our protagonist wakes up, he's in the body of a different uh, guest at the party he's been invited to. So it's generally completely bonkers. (laughs) It is completely bonkers. I can completely, I can, can 
can concur with that. <laughs> um, interestingly, was that your pitch? Was yes. That, that was your pitch line? Yeah, and okay. it, it took me a long time to get there because the original, when you write these things to agents and they're always like, you know, just tell us what your book's about. So I think any debut author will say that letter is about two pages long when they first go for it. And it's like, so it's about this and this and this. And there's a sub-theme that's really about this. That's really, I can't leave that out. So it took me about a month to edit that down to like a two-line pitch and realise what my book was actually about. And did you did you sorry did you pitch it in kind of in terms of it being crime fiction or did you mm. it, were you going in for those kind of imprints and stuff like that or uh, no well I looked at Harry initially my agent so I just I looked around on the internet for somebody who would take a crime novel that was basically sci-fi fantasy as well and it turned out there was Harry so that really narrowed my choices for me as it turned out Excellent. it's great advice isn't it to to look for agent or books of a similar genre and then find the agent who represents it is that kind of how you went about looking for your agent looking at similar books yeah absolutely so I was looking for a guy who it's an interesting process because I hadn't really looked at the publishing industry at all before I finished the books I didn't want to get too far down the road and sort of I wanted to focus on what I was doing so when the book was about a month out from being finished finished it feels weird to say that now because I realized at that point there was still like a year and a half of editing to go but like when I thought it was finished um I started looking around the internet to see what the next stage would be and it was like we'll go and get an agent and it's like well you've got about a 0.0000001% chance of getting an agent and you're just suddenly like well crap there's only one guy who can actually do this if I don't get him I feel pretty screwed but thankfully he came through but yeah it was just that he he was very useful in all his interviews he'd stated specifically what he wanted and there was one where he basically asked for my book it was a really strange experience just to be like oh he wants he wants this like because nobody else wanted it at that time so yeah destiny that you found each other yes exactly me and harry also he's much much taller than me which really upsets me (laughs) so as you mentioned the plot is intricate Mm. shall we say Mm -hmm. it's you say bonkers we say intricate um firstly how did you come up with the idea Mm. um because it's incredibly imaginative and how did you go about keeping it a clear in your head and clear for the reader uh it's a good question the i actually came up with the plot out of fear probably Mm -hmm. because i what i actually wanted to do was just write an agatha christie novel um they were the first novels i ever ever loved and i devoured them when i was like eight or nine so when i decided at 21 with my massive ego that i was going to write an agatha christie novel i had a little crack at it and started thinking about a plot and all i could do was write a very bad Agatha Christie novel because it turns out she's written them all, like every single one of them. She's done them all. She's done all the great twists, all the great plots, all the great characters. And as much as I tried to do it, I just kept writing an inferior version of what she'd already done. And it seemed like a waste of time. There was no point adding something to a canon that was worse than what was already there. So I didn't want to do that. So I stopped writing and was like, you know, any day now I'll come up with a cracking idea that will make this worthwhile doing. And then you can cut to about 10 years later, (laughs) which is when I was working as a travel journalist. So I was having a lot of those uh, flights that you have, like 2 a.m. You don't really know what time zone you're in. You don't really know who you are. You're a bit dozed, but your eyes are open, you know, those sorts of things. Mm And um, it was just waiting for me. Like, I returned to this idea of the Second of the Christie novel, and I think all of the 80s had just congealed over the top of it. Like, the, as I said, the Groundhog Day, the uh, Quantum Leap. And there was just an idea waiting for me. It was just the fully formed. I didn't quite have the plot. I didn't know who the characters were, but I knew the, what I'd be writing. So I got my laptop down and just, like, dashed off about 2,000 words on that flight. 
And yeah, that was it. So none of those 2,000 words are in the books. Nobody needs to worry. I threw those away because they were rubbish because you don't write well at 2 a.m. on a flight after airplane food. That's what I've learned. But uh, yeah, I tossed those away. But that was it. That's how it came. And then in terms of as I started to get the plot together, it actually took me about three months to plan it out. Um, And I didn't do any writing at all. Well, we'll probably come back to it later. I did a bit of writing for background. It's one of my processes. But... I planned it out. I used a lot of spreadsheets, a lot of post-it yeah, I was notes. Say, huge, <laughs> huge, ridiculous spreadsheet with like every every five minutes of the day, just where everyone was in the house, what they were doing. So every character, even ones who don't speak, where they would be, whether someone could interact with them, whether they'd be in the way of something happening, whether they'd be there to observe a thing happening. So three months of that, and then lots of post-it notes with things to remind myself to do during the writing. So. Make sure the atmosphere is suitably gothic. Make sure that um, this character is feeling this at this time or comes back to this notion. So, you know, the sort of vague stuff that's in the background of the book. And I just covered my walls, two walls in my study with all these post-it notes. And then, interestingly, when I finished the book, it was like part of the grand process of finishing the book, was that I took these post-it notes. It was very just a ceremony almost. I took them down to get my walls back. And just loads of them like, oh, that would have been a great idea. Well, I didn't do that. I just ignored them. The moment they went up, I forgot about them. So that's, yeah, there was a lot of that. But even then, I wrote myself into a corner in the novel about a year and a half in and ended up tossing about 20,000 words, 40,000, something like that away um, and had to go back to kind of the place where I diverged and made mistakes. So it was tricky. How long did it take you to write? Uh, Two and a half years of writing, about six months of editing. Um, So it's been about three years. And then there's bits and bobs that come along as you go with different editors and stuff. I love that. I'm I'm happy that you've said that that's how you plan it. Because in my head when when I'm reading it, I'm like, how the fuck does he (laughs) keep on track of everything that's going on? And like, we know, like, I love all the bits where... um, his, you know, he'll be being a specific character, and then so another character that he's already been will kind of appear. Mm. And it's just, oh my god! Like, how do you remember that? So I love the fact that you spent that long just working yeah. it out, getting it down, well, like working out the journey. Like, well, it was interesting actually because that specific thing you just talked about was when I was writing the book. There's this big thing right between planning and pantsing the novel, which mm. again, expressions I'd never heard of before <laughs> I came into it. And I planned this one meticulously. But what I found as well, I was doing that as I got, I probably got about six, seven months in and realized that I wasn't having as much fun with the concept as I should be having, mm. that I'd, I had all these mechanics that I could be using that, as you say, time travel, people always bump. Like if you don't do body swapping, they have to bump into each other. Like that has to be quite fun. Mm. The time travel leaving notes for each other sort of like all these, like, I called them gags, like jokes, mm. like they had to be in there. And I wasn't doing them because I was so wedded to the plan that I'd written for myself. I was just so worried about the plot. So I actually give myself a little wiggle room to start putting these things in so I could have more fun with it, so I could start um, having him bump into himself and have these conversations with himself that were a bit weird. And mm. like, and they became so fun to write that I ended up writing kind of towards them. And part of the reason why I ended up throwing 40,000 words away is because I wrote too many of them. I got too wedded to that concept instead, and it was just all of a sudden like that took me away from the plot so I had to sort of pull it back. So there was a constant push and pull between sort of like panting and planning and yeah. trying to entertain myself while I was writing. Which brings us very neatly onto our next question, which is about rewriting and editing. Mm. Obviously, you know, you've got this intricate plot is so well planned with a little bit of wiggle room. Mm. But when you went back to do edits, or did you go back to do edits? Or had you planned it so meticulously that you felt you got to the end and thought, I'm done? 
Uh, well, I when I got to the end of it, my writing alone before I'd got Harry, my agent, and before it had obviously gone to a publisher, I thought I was done. Um, but it was only because I'd pushed out as far as I could to the edges of my concept. Uh, I couldn't think of any more fun, fun things to do. I couldn't think of other ways of playing with the structure of it, and I couldn't see what else could go into this. It felt like a really stuffed trunk at the end. I was like, there's nothing more to go into there. And what happened is it went to Harry, and he wanted a certain edit on it because he wanted more tension, he wanted more threat earlier on. Um, and what we ended up doing, because I had a very specific idea about how long this could be, which was about 90,000 words. You'll find the book's 130,000 yeah. words, so that got thrown out of the window very early doors. Um, but we ended up taking things out of that trunk. Like There were certain things that just became less important the more we focused on. So the more it became a sort of thriller, or not a thriller, but the more we brought the threat earlier into the book, and some of the confusion earlier into the book, the more I threw away some of the other stuff I'd had in there. Um, and that actually ended up working out really nicely because it simplified the early part of the book very nicely and gave the reader a much easier on-ramp. So in my first draft of it, it was weird from page one, and then it just got weirder, and then it magnified the weirdness by 100, and then you just died. Like, it was just, it was just a David Lynch... It was a David Lynch novel. It was a mess. Do you think it's really important then that especially debut authors get input from objective voices, whether that be an editor or some a friend who reads a lot? How important do you think that outside voice is in oh, getting... I can only speak for myself. I, it was hugely important mm-hmm. to me. I mean, I'd sent the book... When I finished writing it, I sent it to three people I'd worked with in the past who were editors of various tracks. I was a journalist for a long time. And they were people who read widely, who edited and because we're journalists, they had no particular qualms about telling me something was crap or that it wasn't working or it was slowing the pace down. or And they were brilliant at telling me, look, you've this plot here, people have completely forgot it by the time they get here. And I went through that with three different people and they had different views on the book and that helped it get it into a shape that Harry the agent could then take it on. I genuinely believe if they'd not read it and give me that feedback, Harry couldn't have taken that novel on because it wouldn't have been in a state for him. It would have required too much work. Mm. So I went through that for myself and I would just recommend anybody does that. If you can find impartial readers who, and it's difficult to do, but if you can find an impartial reader who's got that editing experience, it's brilliant. And then obviously your agent will come in. And I've, it's interesting coming into this, re, talking to a lot of debut authors and talking to a lot of authors who are quite precious about it. And I understand why. But most of the time, these people are experts in getting your book sold. It seems to me strange to fight that. I can understand why you had an artistic vision, but yeah, like you know what I mean. Like a big block of marble is beautiful. You might as well turn it into a statue. And if you need people to help you do that, so and then when Alison came in at uh, Raven, she was magnificent, and that was and then Grace, my US publisher as well, massively helped. So there was a lot of hands in this, and I don't feel overly sensitive about saying that and admitting that like it was a big bucket it took a lot of help mm-hmm. well it's worked out wonderfully well oh thank you <laughs> um so we um as you obviously you've been trying to create this agatha well, you mentioned that you tried to create this agatha christie novel and one thing that obviously from the word go is how amazing all the characters are oh thank you you know like they're so fun and so you know you can visualize them straight away and they're memorable and like and you know it does feel like that kind of classic mm. you know kind of thing so um we'd like to know a little bit more about how you how you went in, how you went about your character development oh it's well there's two strands to that one is that the characters in the book especially the characters in habits they actually function 
as pacing as much as plot. So I used them to speed my novel up or slow it down as I needed to. So there's a character, I think the second or third host, who is a banker who is like uh, massively fat. And the reason for that was actually purely to slow the novel down at that point. You've been getting so much plot, you've been getting so much exposition, things have been moving so quickly that I needed a character just to sit down and think for a little bit. And the idea that someone would be forced to sit down and think and would be brilliant at that because he's the cleverest character in the book um, really worked for me. And then once I kind of worked out I could do that, I started doing it with every character. So every character functions in that way. If there's a character who is like lithe, like who can move very, very quickly, chances are they're going to be a bit thicker than everyone else because they'll just rush headlong into things. Um, there's cowards because the plot requires cowards. So I use characters to do that. But then once I had them all in place, I wanted to get around them. So what I did and what I do for all short, like all stories, I write short stories, the next novel, things I've done in the past, is I write things called Bibles for them. Um and a Bible is nothing to do with religion, but it's just a it's just about them having a day outside the book. So I imagine taking my fat banker, I take him out of this story completely and I just have him go shopping for some oranges or something. Like it's got nothing to do with the novel, it'll never be in the novel. But it helps me work out how he would function just in his day to day life and what he'd be up to. So every character in the book got one of those. So some of them are five hundred words, some of them thousand, some of them two hundred. And it just helps me visualise them, get around them, understand who they are a bit more. And then you can, once you've got that core, you can start throwing them at each other and you start getting really interesting outcomes because you don't have to plot for that, particularly because you know them so well because you've already written them. Smash them together, see what conversations they come up with and see where that sort of drives your plot. I mean, you know where it's going, but see if it takes you somewhere interesting. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how that happened. That, so. sounds, that sounds great. What a lovely idea. Do you just kind of free write? the story or do you do you, do you give them all the same kind of day out or do no you, no completely different, different ones yeah okay. yeah all completely different things so some of them i mean i think philip has maybe seen them sorry the publicist is quietly saying <laughs> just She's not even here she uh, does not exist um but yeah so i wrote what they they ended up being quite strange they ended up being for the seven deaths characters they ended up being their own little story and they all interconnected the way the big novel would connect um, but again, it's a very completely different thing. It's got nothing to do with... But yeah, it was just... It accomplished the same end. And I've done it again for the book that I'm currently writing. So And that was, that was far more mundane. That is generally somebody shaving in the mirror and kind of just talking himself through that process. Because <laughs> then I have to see his face in the mirror and, and the way he shaved was very interesting. And so it's just... It's not interesting. I'm sorry. It's interesting <laughs> to me as the author. Hey, and us. Like, we oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly the kind of thing. I love like. that idea of um, just the process that you have. And you mentioned earlier having lots of processes. Mm. Do you have any others that you would, would share with us? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so in terms of how I write, uh, I am. it's really hard for me to write if I'm not in the mood to write. Um, so I tend to write very early in the morning or very late at night, much to my wife's consternation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll wake up at six and I'll start writing and I'll probably write till about nine or ten. Uh, but anything I write in the middle of the day is going to be garbage. <laughs> like It's just going to be dross and I, I might I've said this before but I might as well just smash my head into the keyboard for five hours for all the difference it would make and then I will spend the next day editing it so the, the pattern I've got into is that I will write early morning late at night and then at some point in the middle of the day I'll start editing the stuff that I did yesterday and that because that's dead time anyway and editing's a very different part of my brain I know actually physiologically it's not a different part of my brain it's exactly the same part of my brain but it feels very different um so that's how I divide my day up and then 
like most authors, I think there's just a lot of music involved. So like music for different moods, music to sort of like um, help me. Again, there's music attached to certain characters, um, some instrumental, some like one of the characters in the current book is, uh, <laughs> well, this is ridiculous. The book is set in the 17th century. And the character's music is Run the Jewels, which is like, it's just like... Love Run the Jewels. Everyone loves the Run They're brilliant, but it, it's just very weird. It's just, that's the music that kind yeah, of gets Hamilton this... Hamilton vibe. Yeah, 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 I think so, yeah. So it's just, um, so it's stuff like that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because um, do you know Ali Land? I think yeah, she, yeah. She gave you a great quote. She gave me a great quote. She's yeah, brilliant. Yeah, she and she would talk about how she, um, she'd play certain music to get into the character, like to mm. sort of like to get sort of start get her creative juices flowing she like light candles and like start playing music and stuff like that so it sounds like you do something similar yeah i mean it was brilliant allison allison termed it method writing so the other thing i tend to do a lot is try to go to places that have some resemblance to what i'm doing in the book so for seven deaths for the house i went to a sort of creepy gothic uh a manor in the south of France uh, and crept around that at night with a candle uh, to try and get a feel for it. I like what else did I do? I went to a lot of National Trust properties in the UK to get a feel for like that life and how things were divided upstairs, downstairs, the grounds, all that sort of stuff. Wandered around in a load of forests. Uh, I stirred a lot of people. That's not great, I admit. But like, I was just trying to get people's like ticks and sort of like understand how they. And again, I guess that feeds into the idea of having these fully rounded characters. Because it's hard when you sat in front of a computer, you're just trying to write how a person just sits still and like how they think and what they're doing with their head and so what they're doing with the hands and stuff. And it's hard to visualize. Whereas if you just go out with a notebook and just incredibly creepy at people, yeah. very easy. Very, it turns out very easy. It's Every- really fun as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, well, until the police come. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any characters that you particularly enjoyed writing? Ravencourt. I loved Ravencourt. I loved writing him. He, because I'm a six foot two piece of noodle spaghetti like i am so getting that far out of my own body into that entirely different shape and mind he's like a hundred times cleverer than i am as well so trying to sort of like get a handle on how that would work and how somebody who is so he's a banker so his thought processes are very economical they're very about money they're very transactional they're very sort of um, balanced and there's a lot of metaphors in his chapter that kind of relate to that which was something I tried to do early doors in the book and kind of dropped out. Like the characters, there was supposed to be a character who was quite religious and he was going to speak in a lot of religious metaphor and I was going to try and do that for each one, but it didn't quite pan out. But anyway, so there's a lot of that in him. So just writing that, and he occupies a brilliant point of the book where the character is just beginning to understand things. So there's a lot of the book beginning to form itself in his mind, how the rules work, who the enemies are, the fact that he has enemies. And he's got to start to do something about that and make plans for it. Uh, So it was a really nice thing to write, to have a character begin to take control, but also have this physical limitation, but also have this wonderful mind that was just roaring ahead. That's one of the best things about all the characters, I think, is the... um like the fact that it's the voice of the of the narrator like of Aiden but then he's hindered by the certain characteristics mm. of the characters it's a really interesting another layer yeah like, thank you you know it's not just him being himself in those bodies he's affected by that yeah well again it comes down to what we were talking about before the jokes and not and using the concept to its full potential that if you had a host body um that seemed like that push and pull again seemed to be a really interesting thing to do but actually it turned out to be incredibly hard to write um so it's probably one of the last things 
in the novel. I'm trying to think about it now, but probably one of the last things in the novel that I got right, I would say. Like it, it was the balance of it was all over the place for a very long time. And some hosts would again, it's very plot difficult because the longer he goes in these hosts, the more he's taken over by them, or the more he has to struggle against them. But that obviously makes it much harder for him to be doing the things he needs to be doing that the plot demands him to do. So trying to get that balance and trying to make sure that you constantly had that sense that he was struggling, but he could somehow get through it and it felt real. It was really, really tricky. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and That was a great mutual... Yeah, mm. yeah, 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 yeah. Team! Team riffraff. Um, one of the things we're beginning to notice more and more, especially with fiction, that the idea of genre mm. is beginning to kind of take a bit of a back step it's not that you know this book is tradition this is a crime book and this is mm. a psychological thriller and your book i think more than any other is cross genre I, mm. I mean there's some horror in there there's some murder mystery in there there's some sci-fi like yeah. you say where do you stand on the idea of genre and did you set out to sort of write one and then want to pile more in as you went along no not at all i have no problem with genre um i think genres are just if i've got people like my mum she reads in a genre it's mm. good for her she probably she walks into a bookshop it's too big there's too many books she doesn't know where to go but she knows she likes she likes thrillers she knows she likes romance novels it gives her a place to kick off doesn't it um and she'll look at the little tables at the front so genre's fine uh but for me as a writer and as a reader i for genre it's just i just take what i need and leave the rest mm. so i just I had the story in mind. I took what I needed to write my story, and then I never really worried about what genre I was pulling from and um, how that would go together. So long as when it all came out at the end, it did all fit together nicely, and I I hope it does. But it's Tetris, isn't it? You just like squeeze your pieces together, and if it's nice and tight and it looks good, you're away. And but the in terms of labelling it, that's entirely up to people like Philippa, the quiet Philippa next to us. It's entirely up to Alison and Harry and people who do the marketing selling side of it. My job is just to write a coherent story that has the best bits of the the best bits that I need to tell my story. So I don't worry about it too much. So you wouldn't recommend to, you know, aspiring writers, you know, to write with any of that in mind. You your advice presumably would be write what you want and don't worry about the rest of it did yeah. you ever have did you ever have a concern when you were writing it thinking god i don't know where this is going to sit in the market no god no i the only concern i had while i was writing it was that it was going to be rubbish when i was done <laughs> uh that was it that was my concern for about two and a half years and then probably six months of the editing period um that it was just garbage and it wasn't working because it weirdly doesn't i don't know if this is every novel because i've only ever written one but they don't come together until right at the end and that seems to be the, the final like you tighten a few screws and all of a sudden like it does hang together or it doesn't and there it is so no that was my concern i was never really bothered about i was yeah it's interesting because when i came to do when i looked for harry a lot of the agents were kind of like well you should have an idea in the market where this is going to sit who is it for what you're doing but then the weird uptick of that is you're like well how does anybody do anything new exactly. like that's if that's your concern how am i supposed to sort of like state my own flag um, so I'm glad I didn't see that advice early doors because actually that may have made me nervous about what I was doing because this was going to be, I knew it was going to be a big complicated thing. I knew it was going to take me a lot of time. And to be real about it, there had to be some sort of financial reward at the end of it because it's three years of your life. It's I was working as a freelancer. Uh, I defect, I've not put my life on hold, but you know I could have been earning a lot more just as a full-time journalist, like progressing my career. So yeah, when you... 
go into it and if somebody's like oh no I don't think you'll ever sell that that really would have made me a bit nervous about writing it so ignore the internet would be my advice to everybody just don't look at anything yeah yeah everything is just so conflicting isn't it and mm. there's just so much information out there and so many perceived rules and all that kind of and stuff. so much bad advice yeah. so much bad advice so many websites from people who are like oh I've wrote a I don't know what they've written, but like just a terrible, terrible garbage novel that went to, you know, number one in like 1982 or something and is still not peddling their expertise. <laughs> like, you could, you'll just go mad if you pay attention to any of it. Absolutely. Yeah, but it's quite a madness inducing process anyway. Mm. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about um, our listeners quite like hearing how you got your book deal? So obviously, mm. you, you'd written it, you found, so you'd written it to the level that you were happy with it, and then you found Harry, your agent. Yep. And then kind of where, where did it go from there? Uh, well, for me, it absolutely went nowhere. I handed it to Harry and then I just disappeared. So I went and did, I think I went on holiday. Nice. Um, and I did a couple of things that I've been waiting to do for a while. Um, because Harry had been like, well, you might want to start getting on with your second one. I just couldn't. Like, I was so buried in the first one. I knew that if we got a deal, we'd have to go back to it. So I found it really difficult. So I just had to step away from it all entirely. And because I was a journalist, there's no stepping away from writing. Mm. You're always writing. So on, I mean, I during the writing process, I dedicated about 70% of my time to the novel and 30% to my freelance work. Um, and then obviously that just went to 100% freelance once the book ended. So I was writing various things, but that was nice. It was refreshing, but I was still writing and it's still tiring to sit in front of a computer. So we tried to do as many trips as we could. We tried to take a break and just let Harry do his thing. Uh, and after that, it was just Harry came back, sent her out on submission. And then Harry came back and just told me we had a few publishers interested. We went in and met with them uh, and they were all lovely and they all kind of, give me their idea of you know release dates and sort of what they would do with it their edits and stuff for it and then it was just kind of a case of like personality to be honest like the office come in those offers go up and then at the end of it you're kind of like well you know whose vision adheres to what i'd like to see with my book like whose back catalogue do i really respect and admire um whose book do i want sat next to my book ultimately and that was Raven in the end. So and that's and because they were an imprint and because Alison was so good, um, and she had this massive reputation, um, yeah, it was just great. And we had a lovely meeting. We went in and we we drank tea and we had a lovely chat for half an hour. And it was just it was just a really nice vibe. And it kind of felt like it just felt like the natural home for this book. It felt like Alison and the team at Raven knew exactly what they would do with it, and that gelled very specifically of what I wanted for it. So yeah, in the end, it was just, we went away, uh, had a little think about it for a few days, and I just told Harry and he went and did it, so yeah, yeah. And it's all worked out wonderfully, it's all been received really well. How does that feel, having put, um, you know, committed so much time to it, and, and so much intricate dedication to mapping it out, and you know, hmm. how does it feel now that it's out in the world, and it's being received so well? It's, I am a miserablest, uh, <laughs> I think is my problem, that I always, I always wonder what's next. So I, my wife hates this about me. I can't settle myself to enjoy the thing that I've just done. Once that thing is done, I move on. Um, so in terms of like the novel's gone, that's brilliant and the reviews are great and people have been very lovely about it and the team are doing great work around it. But for me, my head's moved on to the next book um, and that's where my focus is. And hopefully that one will do well, but then my book, will, I'll move on to the next thing. So... I just can't. I'm never in the moment ever. <laughs> so I just like I just like other people enjoy it around me, and that feels very nice. And yeah, but how does your wife feel about it? 
uh, about the book mm. overall. She was really supportive. Like we <laughs> we used to live in Dubai, so when I had the idea for the book, we were in, living in Dubai and we lived in a lovely apartment and we uh, we had really nice jobs. We were travel writers for um, Etihad, the airline, oh, nice. so they would send us on holiday for two weeks a month. Like that was our that was honestly our job. It should not exist. It is ridiculous <laughs> that it exists and it's ridiculous that I did it, but we did it together. She was a travel journalist on the same magazine. Uh, and then when I had the idea for this book, I was like, well, I can't write this book in Dubai. Like, it's very British. It's very stately home. It's very Agatha Christie. And as far as I know, Agatha Christie never wrote a book in a sandpit. So that is, <laughs> so we're going to have to change this. So I asked her whether she would leave all that behind and come to London. And she said yes. But I did, to be honest, promise her that it would only take a year rather than three it ultimately ended up. So, no, she was very, very patient. But as I say, we had to put a lot of stuff on hold. Um, to get this done because you know you're making as much money as you can to pay your bills and feed yourself and the rest you're throwing into this writing this novel um so yeah now that it's gone somewhere she's i mean she would have always been chuffed because she likes the book and she liked the concept and she wanted to see it finished but it's lovely for her to see it doing well and sort of prove that time was worth spending so if it Aspiring writers who are listening to this and mm. thinking, I desperately want to write this book, but I have a full-time job. You know, they want to write my book. It's um, been done, honestly. <laughs> so I'm so sorry. Hey, you write Agatha Christie's. Yeah, so, that's you know. Yeah, yeah. Just wait a hundred years. Exactly, and, you know. and rewrite it. Um, but you know, I think one of the things that puts aspiring writers off is thinking, I, I, I can't dedicate time. I can't leave my job. I don't know how I'm going to earn money financially to do this. Mm. It sounds like you took the opposite approach and you thought, I've got this idea. I'm going to throw everything at it. Mm-hmm. How would you advise, you know, as people who want to write books, do you say just go for it, take the hit financially if necessary mm-hmm. and, and throw yourself into it? Or, you know, where would you, what advice would you give to people listening thinking to, I want to do this too? To be honest, I think if you want to write a book, you're going to write a book. I don't think you can resist it, the pull of it. I don't think, look at the industry, like it's a mental industry. Like if you were thinking about it logically, no one would ever write a book. It makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> There's almost nowhere else where you do the work beforehand and then hope you get paid at the end of it. So nobody thinks about this logically. And if you try to do it, I think you'll just twist yourself up in knots and convince yourself not to do it. It's either in you or it's not. And if you've started, then you're a writer. And if you're not started, you're probably not. And I think that's as harsh as it sounds. I think that's probably where I come down on it. I've got a lot of friends who uh, talk about writing novels and they've been talking about it for 20 years and there's no novel. And I, it's just, I think for some people, writing is a lifestyle choice and for them, they don't necessarily need to write the novel to have the lifestyle. And that's absolutely fine. That's perfectly valid. And it's perfectly great to say you're going to write a novel and not write a novel. That's if you want to choose to do that and that you like doing that and you like sitting in coffee shops and sort of like typing away up half a page for three weeks. That's a hobby. That's great. Go and do it. But you're either writing or you're not. And that's that. Oh, that's pretty good advice. Okay. Very good advice. Yeah. Um, so can we ask you anything about the next book? Uh, you can ask, uh, but to be honest, if I told you, whatever I told you now would probably have changed by the yeah. time it came out, so we'd all look like fools. <laughs> so I'll probably, I will probably not say anything so about it for the moment. So you're deep into like spreadsheet, spreadsheet mode at the moment? I'm deep into novels, so okay, I've nice. written I've written a fair bit of it, um, and I'm really liking the look of it, but again, any 
any moment I could just have a great idea or I, th- I could think it's a great idea and it could cause me to go back into it and rip parts up and rewrite it so yeah that's kind of my ridiculous ridiculous mindset at the moment well we're very excited to read it when it does come out thank, thank you very much it. and we're very excited that you're appearing at the Riffraff on Yay. April 12th um, we've got a fab lineup, so please do come along and see, meet Stuart and check out the riffraff.com the hyphen riffraff.com for tickets um, and we can't wait to see you on April the 12th Thanks very much, guys. It's been fun. Thank you so much. Cheers. Um, Rosie and I just wanted to thank you all so much for listening. We're so incredibly grateful. So please do let us know what you think, what you'd like more of, and any debut authors you'd like to hear from. Also, it would be really lovely if you could subscribe and give us a review so we can spread the word and give these marvellous debut authors the exposure they deserve. The Riff Raff podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. Come say hey at the-riffraff.com 